Welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we investigate the financial independence topics important to you. Join us as we learn how to optimize our lives, save money, and invest for our future. We'll go coast to coast interviewing experts and chatting with Canadians about their inspirational FI journeys. EQ Bank's Savings Plus account is Explorify Canada's favorite bank account. It's not hard to see why. It functions as both a checking and savings account, offers an everyday high interest rate, free Interact e-transfers, and so much more. Visit exploreficanada.ca forward slash EQBank to open your account today. Hello again, listeners. Money Mechanic is with you. And of course, Chrissy's with me as well. Good afternoon, Chrissy. Hello, Money Mechanic, my friend. How are you doing? Very, very well. Looking forward to another exciting episode with a, a very interesting guest today. But we've got a little bit of business to take care of before we dive into that. What is the announcement, Chrissy? Well, we have picked a winner for our contest for the Cash Flows and Portfolios Retirement Projection. Awesome. Some lucky yep. winner is going to get a full retirement cash flow projection. Who might yes. it be? So we Pick did me. a random Pick drawing. <laughs> you don't need it. You got it figured <laughs> out. <laughs> so our winner is Julia. And we have already contacted Julia. And she will be coming on the show to discuss her free retirement projection with us once it's done. Congratulations, Julia. And uh, I know it's big thanks to Mark and Cash Flows and Portfolios for, for doing and that. Joe. And, and Joe, yeah. Joe, the invisible Joe on the show, but uh, no, Joe's <laughs> a big part of the background there. Yeah, no, thanks a lot to yes. them for doing that. And we're looking forward to hearing uh, the story and the, what uh, Julia finds out. Yeah, and we'll keep you all updated on when that show will appear. Uh, as we mentioned, it, it's going to take a bit of time to put that together, but um, hopefully it'll be in a month or so. We'll keep you posted. Sounds good. Today's big episode is with a blogger friend of ours. Uh, it's a relatively tight-knit community in Canada with all the personal finance bloggers, which is which is really fun because it's nice to get to know people a little more than maybe just what they're writing. You get to, you know, interact a little bit more. A lot of, most of the bloggers are very willing to connect with you over their social media accounts. And I know I've bugged our guest today quite a few mm -hmm. times because he has so many interesting investments that I really look up to him because he's, uh, well, should we drop the spoiler that he's at financial independence and I'm jealous and it's awesome. And, <laughs> and I'm like, you make fun of me. Well, I shouldn't say make fun of me, Chrissy, because you don't. Oh, but, I kind of do. <laughs> but you kind of poke fun at me that I have like a little investment in everything. But I think our guest today might have a little bit more. Oh my goodness. Because he has things that I don't have, <laughs> Quite a Chrissy. Bit more. <laughs> like, I don't have any wine. I don't have historical <laughs> coins. I don't have Zimbabwe yeah. <laughs> banknotes. I mean, come on. And what about Twinkies? He uh, Twinkies too. <laughs> we're we're going to find out about Twinkies. So, I think before we get to, before we introduce our guest, we should just caveat this episode for our listeners that we are diverging away from the standard, you know, index ETF portfolio. And if that's what you've chosen to do, don't get discouraged. Don't think you need to change. This is an, an interest episode and uh, our guest has a ton of content on their blog. And there's going to be people out here like myself that that is the kind of money investment nerd that wants to learn about all these different things. So without further ado, our friend, the blogger from Freedom35, Liquid. Welcome to the show, my friend. Hey guys, thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. I don't know why it took us so long to ask you onto the show. <laughs> so glad you're here. 
Yeah, we've been uh, talking about it for a while, Money Mechanic, and I just thinking about ideas. And I think uh, we finally got to, uh, yeah, setting something up to talk about. Yeah, we're excited to dig in. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And like I said, you and I have uh, messaged back and forth online because you have a lot of interesting investments. And uh, I've learned a lot from you. I learned a lot from your blog. So for people that don't know, you uh, you blog at freedom35blog.com. And uh, there's a ton of content on there. I'll let you speak to that later in the episode. But big congratulations goes out to you for achieving financial independence. And we're going to ask you a bit more about that uh, in a little while here. But maybe just start with letting our listeners know a little bit more about you and your story. Yeah, so I'm basically a graphic designer. I started working quite early in my early 20s and just kept saving money and building up investments. And eventually, I became financially independent at 33 years old, and this was last year. So I was originally planning on Freedom 35, hence the blog's name. But last year, there was a big market correction. So I took the opportunity to throw a lot of cash that I had uh, sitting on the sidelines into the market. And because dividend rates were really high at that time, I was getting some really good yields from banks and oil companies. And that kind of just propelled me and fast-tracked my progress so that I basically was able to FI at that time. And since then, I got married and I moved into a new house. And I'm still working right now, but I'm planning to retire over the next few years. Exciting. Now, so how old are you now? I'm 34 now. Okay, so you were about 33 when you reached financial independence, and you said you started investing 12 years before that. So you were around 21 or so? Yeah, Is exactly. Right? Yeah. Wow. I was uh, 20 when I started working, and my first investment was my condo that I bought and I moved into. So luckily, I was able to stay in my parents' basement for that one almost one year time uh, frame to save up enough cash to put down a down payment. And uh, things just started to roll from there. And I got into stocks and ETFs and uh, other investments over time. So I want to know what possessed a 21 year old to <laughs> buy a condo? I mean, most 21 year olds are not even thinking about purchasing property or any kind of investment. So how, how did you figure that out at such a young age that that would be a good financial move for you? Well, I think part of it is just looking at my parents. They're kind of good savers as well. And uh, they themselves live in their own house and they have a rental property. So I kind of thought maybe that, you know, that's a good option for myself. And also when I was in high school in grade 11, I took an economics class, which was pivotal to me understanding the kind of power of financial knowledge and one of the books that we read had a page where it showed the difference between somebody who invested really early on, like when they're 20 years old, and somebody else who started investing at 30. And the difference was so dramatic. So I just remembered, I have to get start. I have to start investing right away. And uh, so that's what kind of compelled me to look at investments. And at the time, I was weighing, should I put my money in stocks or put my money in real estate? And after some calculation, I just decided buying a condo was the best move mm. for me. Now, would you say you were self-taught or did your parents teach you a lot of this stuff about how, how to buy an investment property and then and how to invest in stocks? Uh, I was 
probably mostly self-taught. They were good role models for me to learn from and certainly use their example as a a solid reference. Um, But I think a lot of the investments that I had and a lot of the ideas that I had about investing, I got more from uh, books than from like other people around me. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That was, you know, like a very popular book uh, even now. And I also read Think and Grow Rich. Mm, yeah. That, that's a really good one as well. Is that Napoleon Hill? That I one? think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just reading books and just gave me the confidence to start on this track. Yeah. I wish I'd seen that piece of paper when I was that age as well. <laughs> I missed it by about 15 years. But that's okay. Never too late to start. Nope. Now, the, well, two things here that I just want to bring up. Um, first of all, on your page where you said you've uh, achieved financial freedom, which huge congrats for that, is you said that you reached financial freedom because your monthly income from your investments was enough to fund your lifestyle. So mm-hmm. I just want to kind of highlight that for listeners because there's a lot of discussion or a lot of information in the FI community where we think we need to achieve 25x, 25 times our expenses. But, you know, you've done it through passive income and, and having that income meet your monthly expense needs. So did you intend to do that from the beginning? Were you always working towards an income stream instead of trying to save a larger lump sum? Can you just speak to that quickly? Yeah. Uh, when I started out, the goal is to become financially independent. And just as you said, it means having enough passive income to cover all of my expenses. But the way to get there is not really set in stone. So the 25 times is more of a guideline that I used, but by no means is it a rule that I have to follow. And there are different thought processes that I use to get there. The most important one was, what can I do today to maximize my potential to reach that financial independence status eventually when I'm 35 years old? So there were some trade-offs that I had to make. For example, with one of my investments, I invested in farmland. That was not a cash flow positive venture to begin with. And it still wasn't by the time I sold it seven years later. But because that had a lot more growth potential, I was able to use it to kind of get me further along in that trend to financial freedom. And then eventually when I sold it, I had this lump sum of cash that I can then go invest in cash flow and uh, income investments. Yeah, I think that's interesting to point that out and and delineate that because you've adapted and changed your journey as you went, taking opportunities as they came along and then and then restructuring for what works at the time. So I think that's important for people to understand is that it, there's no one size that fits all that's going to fit you for your lifetime. It's uh, it's kind of modifying and iterating as you go. Yeah, you, you have to uh, change your mindset and you have to change your strategy uh, because the finance world is always changing and your personality is always changing and you just have to be able to be flexible with your strategies, I think. 
Yeah, that even reflects my own journey starting off in mutual funds because that's all I knew because my mom worked at the bank. And then when I found the financial independence community, I pivoted into index ETFs. And uh, and now my eyes have been open to this whole other world of things that money mechanic dabbles in and people like you <laughs> dabble in. And mm-hmm. and also, of course, real estate, right? There, there are many, oh, many yeah. investments that are absolutely valid and they may not be what the FI community deems as proper investments to reach fire. Uh, but my eyes have been opened and my... I can see it's possible and valid to reach financial independence in many different ways. Oh, yeah, of course. I I think any investment that gets you closer to your goal is a valid investment and it's the right thing for you to do. Because like you said, there are so many different avenues that you can go with that. And everybody kind of has their own take and their own uh, specific knowledge about certain aspects of the world. And I think honing in on those things that you're specifically good at will definitely help you find those kinds of investment avenues that you can take. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the goal of the show to to re- just reveal to people that you don't have to stick with that dogma in the fire community. I think it, mm-hmm. a lot of people are quite stubborn about it. And, and I was part of that crowd when I first found fire, that index ETFs were the only way you had to go low cost, passive index investing. And if you didn't, there was something wrong with you, you're making the wrong decision. And so uh, I think that's what we want to do, open people's eyes up to, to the possibilities of alternative investments. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, Chris, you know, index ETFs, they are the way to go for so many people because it's mm-hmm. the easiest way to go and you're going to get the market average. And if you're consistent over a long period of time, it's going to get you to your goal, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the important part is it will get you there. If you want to make it more complicated or if you want to try and get alpha and outsize, outsize those gains, then there are other things to do. I think that's the interesting part. Some people yes. be like, oh, this is super interesting. Other people be like, I'll wait till next episode when we're back at F- FI school talking yeah, about exactly. ETFs, right? And that's fine. Yeah. That's totally fine. Yeah, but, and we're not saying there's anything wrong with no, index no, ETFs. No. We, we, we fully support them yeah. and endorse them, right? Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, okay. So to that end, I want to hear what Liquid's secret was to financial independence. And the reason I asked specifically that is because your blog post, When You Achieved Financial Independence, you highlighted... highlighted five key reasons. And number one was adopt an abundance mindset instead of a scarcity mindset. Number two was low interest rates. Number three was understand how to value investments. Number four, invest with other people's money. And number five, copy the best of what others have already figured out. So that's kind of the high level here. Uh, let's kind of dig into it a little bit. Number one, what uh, what helped you adopt an abundance mindset? I think being able to figure out what I wanted definitely helped with that. And if there's like one big thing that I can recommend to people to achieve financial independence, at least the way that I can see how people can do it, is to really get to know yourself. Yeah. um, Like Aristotle said, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And I think that is so true because Everything that you tackle from savings to investing to budgeting or anything else financially has to come from within yourself. And 
the intention has to be internal and the motivation has to come internally. And if you don't really know yourself that well or what kind of person you are, it can be really difficult to navigate the terrain of financial freedom. And then when you get to financial freedom, you still have all of the same kind of problems that you had before because, you know, if you haven't figured yourself out, it's just not going to help you figure out all of those other problems that money can solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and going along with that, you also have to know your values, uh, what's really important to you, because that's what will drive you through the rough patches as you go towards uh, FI. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we've talked about psychology on this show quite a lot, and it's more and more obvious that that is such a key mm-hmm. part of this journey. All right, what about number two? We've been in a low interest rate environment for quite a long time. How did that play into your success? Uh, so this one is pretty much going back to knowing myself, knowing my risk tolerance, and also looking at the changing, the ever-changing environment that we're in and being able to uh, be flexible and adapt my financial situation and methods with whatever is going on. So because interest rates are so low, what I was able to do was borrow money from other people and use that to leverage my investments so that I was able to uh, gain more return over time. Now we're going to dig more into that later on because you know, <laughs> both Money mm-hmm. Mechanic and I love using leverage. <laughs> yeah, it's, we'll, we'll keep this in mind because it does segue really nicely into a couple of questions I have, but let's just keep it high level for now. So, okay, yeah, low yeah. interest rates uh, gave you advantages. Okay, good. Uh, what about number three, which was, uh, okay, so this is an interesting one too, and I want to dig into this, as you said, yeah, understand how to value investments and it's super interesting. Our listeners can go to your blog and you've got a lot of your portfolios outlined on there. And you literally have, like, I have, I thought I had a lot of individual holdings. You've got a lot of individual holdings. So <laughs> you do. obviously, you obviously <laughs> yes. understand how to value these investments. So, but just kind of give us a little bit of high level on what is that? What do you mean when you say understand how to value investments? Right. So investments are just like anything else. They are something that you buy with your own money and you can overpay for it if you spend too much and you can also underpay. Now, as a long-term investor, what you want to do is find those undervalued stocks or bonds or real estate assets, any investments, and you want to buy them at a low price. And then when you sell them later, hopefully they'll go back to their properly intrinsic value and you can sell it for a higher price. So most of the money that you're making when you're investing isn't about when you sell it, it's about when you buy it. Because if you can catch it when it's at a good deal, then that is the best time to go in. And then you don't really have to worry about when to sell it as long as you hold it for a long time. And by the time you sell it, chances are it'll go a lot higher than what you bought it for. So if you don't really understand what something it's worth, then it's difficult to navigate the field and manage your finances and to allocate where you want your funds to go because you want to get the most return for your money. And the way you do that is to understand how to value investments and how not to put your money in overvalued investments. So I think that's interesting. And that kind of also talks about how or why uh, index ETFs are the most popular way of sort of getting to financial independence because it's difficult to learn how to value investments and it takes a lot of time and patience and reading and understanding. So for the listeners that are like, I just use index ETFs. Well, that's fine because you're not having to worry about buying it at its lowest or its highest. You're, you're going to average in over a long period of time. 
but uh, definitely if you can get that uh, buy those value investments then uh, you're going to get a little bit ahead on that so what about number four invest with other people's money opm yeah so this gets a little bit back into i guess number two but it basically the idea is to use other people's money to basically leverage your portfolio so what i've done was instead of just buying a stock or my condo uh, just using cash i borrowed money from the bank and i was leveraging in the beginning at you know pretty high amounts uh 5 10 17 times for my farmland i think but um eventually if i hold it for long enough and the income that i'm producing from it can pay off yeah can afford to pay the mortgage on it and the debt interest then I can keep that and hold it and just wait for the asset to go up. Because if I'm leveraged five times, then what that means is essentially if the, for example, the price of the apartment goes up by 10%, my actual returns excluding cost would be 50% because of that leverage. So without using other people's money, I calculated it would have taken me like 36 years to become FI. But with other people's money's help, I was able to do it in 12 years. So without leverage, you're on hard mode the whole time. (laughs) Yes. And that's only possible, of course, because of number two, which is low interest rates right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And the last one, copy the best of what others have already figured out. You listed some books in here. uh, What's your suggestion there, number five? Yeah, this is a pretty big one, but it's basically do what other successful people have already done because... It's very difficult to have your own ideas and to come up with new ways to make money because pretty much every decent way to make money, somebody else has already done. So you can look for those people who are masters at what they do and you just copy what they do. And that's what I have done. And I've listed a bunch of people and also they have a lot of books and they have a lot of interviews. They have a lot of papers written about them. So I just look at what kind of actions they take, what's on their minds, how they think, and I try to imitate what they are doing. I'm not trying to copy them directly because it's very difficult to make money by reading like a step-by-step prescription. It's much better to understand what it is that they do and try to apply it to my own life because not everything that every successful person has done, I can relate. So what I do is I I look at what they do and I think, does that apply to my life? Can I use that somehow? And if it doesn't, then that's fine. I keep it in the back of my head. I can come back to it later maybe. But for the ones that I can say, ah, yes, I can do that. Then that's when I take action. That's when I write up a plan and I follow through. So who was it that uh, got you investing in Twinkies? Oh, I, I think that was just me. I, I, that was just a fun experiment that I wanted to try because I heard on the news, uh, I think it was local news, that uh, uh, the company Hostess was not going to make any more Twinkies. Oh, really? So I, yeah, so I, I never thought, heard that. They're, they're still in business, aren't they? They are. But at the time, there was a big lockout or something, or there was something <laughs> with the unions. And there was like one company who made Twinkies in like the whole country. And they said they were shutting down and not making any more. <laughs> so I decided, you know, maybe if I stack up on these and just buy a bunch, maybe they'll go up in price over time. 
So I went to the local store and bought what I could. I put them in the freezer. And I think a few months later or something, the labor unions came to an agreement and then they decided to, you know, start making them again. So the, the end result was I just ate all the Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they last forever anyway, right? I, I oh, think yeah. people have done experiments where you just keep them for 20 years and they're still just as good. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. So I didn't make any money from it. But when I was looking on eBay, like the like a few days after uh, they said they were going to shut down, people were selling them on eBay and they were going for like $30, $40 a box. Wow. So I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. Uh, of course, that never panned out to anything, but it's just interesting to see different kinds of investments you can get yourself into if you pay attention. <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> and you've got a you've got a big list. We'll get to some of the yeah. others as the show goes on here. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I found interesting, and you've written about it a couple times, and I think we'll just kind of roll into this where you've talked about how low interest rates and leverage have helped you shorten your journey and, and sort of give you a power play on that. Can you just kind of talk to us a little bit about what you mean when you wrote about how the real rate of return is uh, due to interest rates right now and how you look at that and say if inflation is this is 3% or whatever example is going to be, then you know what your actual rate of interest is. Can you just briefly kind of run through that? Right. So in normal times, we have a positive real interest rates, which means the interest rate that you're getting on your investment is higher than what the inflation is. So you're getting a real return after inflation. But in some situations, like I would argue right now, the inflation rate is higher than the interest rate on a lot of investments. Um, and that includes interest rates on, say, mortgages or uh, margin accounts at discount brokerages. So what that means is if you are borrowing at a lower interest rate, let's say 2%, but inflation is higher at 4%, then that difference, which is that 2%, is actually a benefit to you because you are. it's almost like you're getting paid 2% to borrow money. Yeah, I really like that you make that point in your post, and we'll share that in our, our show notes. But yeah, you say, thanks to negative interest rates, holding a mortgage produces wealth net of inflation. And I, I knew that intuitively, but the way you put it like that, it makes it very easy to understand how you can see how the real interest rates, like once you actually factor in inflation, it actually makes a huge difference when, when you understand that concept. Yeah. So just to explain that a little bit, um, why would holding a mortgage produce wealth is because if you're borrowing a mortgage, a lump sum, that liability you have is somebody else's debt, which in most cases is like a bank and when that bank holds that mortgage as an asset, it is an asset for them because you're paying them interest on it. But because of inflation, money goes down in value. So that asset that they're holding is losing value at, if, it's, if inflation is 4% a year, then they're losing 4% of their mortgage asset. But if you're paying them 2%, then they get a little bit of a benefit there, but it's still not as much as how much they're losing. So that's why to you, it is a benefit because you are growing your wealth since you are since inflation is eroding away your debt faster than you're paying it back the only caveat that to that though is you have to make sure that you're using the borrowed money effectively because <laughs> yes. you can't just throw it in a bank bank account because then you'll be losing that same 4% to inflation as well so you have to make sure mm -hmm. you're getting over that hurdle hurdle rate of 
inflation with the asset that you have, with the money that you have borrowed from the bank. Yeah, and obviously don't use it for renovations and vacations and cars, which a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's a interesting, it's kind of one of those little brain gymnastics to get around that and realize what's going on there. But it it's also a concern right now for, you know, the traditional portfolios that we've always heard about because you're, you've given the example of mortgages, but if we're, you know, if we're bond heavy in our portfolio as well, then that the real interest rate is, is an issue long term as well. And, and we don't know what's going to happen. Rates could definitely go up, but that's also going to be bad for the bonds in, in that term as well. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to know what interest rates will do in the future, where the economy is going, job reports. That's why it's always good to be flexible and keep an open mind and be able to pivot when the economy changes. And this ties into two of the other posts that you did. I'm not sure which one we want to start with, where you talk about debt. And you really turn the tables on how most of us have been taught to think about debt. And that's something, actually, before we talk about that, I want to ask you about, because you're from an Asian background, and your parents are, I assume, similar in age to our parents, probably in the baby boomer-ish generation. And uh, Yep, they are. Okay, so a lot of them are very debt-averse. They taught us, and they were... they came to this country, maybe a lot of them were immigrants. They didn't want debt because they felt it was such a burden. And and understandably, when they were buying houses in their 20s and 30s, interest rates were very high, you know, in the teens. So understandably, debt was a huge burden for them and they wanted to avoid it. And so growing up with that, parents who generally believe that you pay off your debt as soon as possible, how did you become a person who's so comfortable with leverage and debt? Um, Yeah, my parents were definitely, they're not totally debt adverse because they do have a mortgage as well and they have a rental property. But yeah, generally speaking, they didn't want me to have too much debt. But through reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, what I learned was the way you get rich, especially if interest rates are low, is to borrow money. And you have to make sure that you are solvent. And if there's any issues that come up, that you are flexible enough to uh, you know, be on top of that and not uh, stretch yourself too thin. So I was careful with that. I never felt like I had too much debt. And my parents, they're kind of hands off, which is nice. So I didn't really have to explain too much to them what I was doing. But they sort of understood that uh, I was using leverage and I was investing yeah, I find even in whether it's our parents' generation or not, there is a lot of focus on paying down your mortgage, being debt-free, and that is the cultural norm, I would say, for most people. And it's kind of hard to overcome that and to to get that courage to do something different. Yeah, I had a lot of help just by, like I mentioned earlier, looking at what other people do. Like Robert Kiyosaki, uh, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he, he mentioned he has like 4,000 units paying him rent every month. So he mentioned that he didn't need a retirement fund because that was basically his retirement fund. And the way he did it was just by borrowing money strategically, doing it in a uh, safe way and just building up from the ground up. And that's how I knew, well, if, you know, because sometimes it's hard to know if something will work out or not. If you don't see somebody else do it first, But once I'm able to see an example of other people do it, then I know, oh, it is possible for me as well. Yeah, and I think we need to really recognize the fact that the majority of small businesses and businesses are started by, 
you know, an entrepreneur going to a bank and or or wherever and saying, "Hey, I need some startup funding to get this business started," and and they use that leverage to their advantage to get the ball rolling and and can control that debt and and use it wisely, right? It's it's not really any different for us if we're using that money to as an investment. It's you're you're buying an asset, you're paying for an asset, and you're hoping to generate income from that asset. And I love the comic that you've got in the post, the illusion of debt. Do you remember mm-hmm. that one? That was one the 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 hundred dollars in the German in yeah. a small town, and I think this is a really important concept that people maybe don't think about a lot. It's it's the liquidity, it's the velocity of money. I've heard that mm-hmm. term thrown around before. Yeah. It's how quickly money moves through our system that that makes the biggest difference. Is is how that one hundred dollars serviced everybody's debt in the cartoon and then came back. So <laughs> it was just it, by moving around the system in liquidity. I think it's just an interesting nuance to understand about our economic system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything in our economy runs on debt. Um, the government borrows money and small businesses borrow money. Large companies also borrow money. Uh, without debt, the economy would come to a grinding halt, which is why debt makes the world go round. And the more you learn about how debt works, the more comfortable you feel, or at least it's the case for me, the more comfortable you feel taking on debt, using debt, and sort of using it as a tool, because you can see how powerful it can be if you're using it the right way. Yeah, and I I think that lesson can apply to a lot of investing. The more you know, the more confident you can be, and the more you can trust in your investment and how it will work out. Yeah, absolutely. Chrissy, you know what? We should make a little pivot here. Otherwise, we're going to get known as the podcast that just talks about <laughs> debt and leverage all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That actually, it's a good time for a break anyway. Yes, so it is. Let, let's have a break and we'll be right back with Liquid. Did you know that the oil sands have pumped a record amount of oil this year? Did you hear about Facebook's new virtual reality remote workspace? Or how about the microchip shortage that's making, well, basically everything electronic more expensive? If you listen to The Peak Daily, you'd learn all of that and more. The Peak Daily is a daily podcast covering the top Canadian and global business stories in seven minutes or less. It's fast, entertaining, and 100% free. Find The Peak Daily wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back here with Liquid from Freedom35. And I want to pivot a little bit into what you're actually holding in your investments. And you've got a post on your blog, which I like, and it's it's called a hedge fund, which was clickbaity enough for me to get in there and go, what's he talking <laughs> about hedge fund? But then I kind of realized what you're talking about. Uh, maybe you can summarize it for us uh, so I don't just steal your thunder here. Right. So traditionally, a hedge fund is an investment portfolio that you can invest in. And there's usually a fund manager. And what they try to do is add alpha and beat the market. But I kind of use hedge fund, the term more strictly as what hedging means. So what this is, is a portfolio that I have put together, which is part of my overall portfolio that contains stocks that pay dividends. And those stocks are in industries that I am a customer of. For example, I load up on gasoline, so I have investments in oil and gas companies, for example, uh, Chevron or Suncor. So this hedge fund is just a collection of the stocks that I have 
And I've kind of broken them up into different categories. So for example, I have one for transportation. I have another one for housing, one for telecommunications, for my high-speed internet and phone bill. And just as an example in there, I would have companies such as Bell and Telus, uh, as well as uh, Apple. So that's just an idea. And the point of tracking this is because I wanted to see if I can have enough investments in a particular sector that those dividends coming out of those stocks that I own will be enough to cover all of my expenses for that particular uh, segment of my spending. Yeah, I love that. And for anybody that is interested in starting out by picking stocks, this is one way I learned too, is always invest in the things you already, in the places you already spend your money. You know, we, we are all paying a cell phone bills and we're, you know, a lot of us are going to a bank. If it, even if you're at EQ bank, you can invest in equitable group, you know, spend the money, invest your money, uh, where you're spending it. And, and I love it. The way you said is you're hedging it because if they raise prices, they may raise dividends as well. And I'd love to have a free cell phone bill or, you know, if you, if you use natural gas, you might have Fortis or, or whatnot. So yeah, I totally agree with that. I like this strategy a lot. Yeah. And like you said, it's a good hedge against increasing prices because if Fortis, you know, grows their uh, rates, then chances are they're going to grow their dividends. And then as a shareholder, you get the benefit of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Super simple way to start. And, you know, you talk about, you know, finding value. I think here is, you could probably argue there's times to buy these companies and times there isn't to buy the companies, but you know, that's kind of getting off into, into the weeds here of how to value an individual stock. I think I'm comfortable enough to just say, Hey, I've got a, I've got a phone bill or a gas bill, uh, holding that and, and getting paid a dividend is, is probably acceptable if I was interested in having individual stocks. Now, beyond that, you have a ton of <laughs> stocks in your other uh, portfolios, which you do show on the blog, which is which was very interesting. I think people will find it interesting if they are interested in individuals, how to put that there. Now, just here's a bit of a bigger, higher level question. Because you've got so many holdings, how do you decide whether it should go in your TFSA, your RSP, or your non-registered? You just got so many holdings. Did you have overlap? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you keep it? How do you kind of keep it organized? I try to keep all my interest paying investments in my RSP or TFSA. Mm-hmm. So I try to load up on my TFSA first. And if I have any US dividend paying US dividend paying stocks, I put that into my RSP. Um, and for my non-registered, I have mostly Canadian dividend paying stocks. And for all of my bonds, they go into uh, my TFSA for the most part. What I try to do is max out the room of my TFSA first. And once that's maxed, I go after my RSP contribution room and try to max that out. However, in some situations, depending on the circumstances, I might do a lot of investments in my non-registered portfolio because I have access to margin there and I have access to more option strategies there. So (laughs) it it just depends. But yeah, usually if it's like a normal year and we see like regular stock appreciation, like no major declines and no like big booms, then I go uh, TFSA, then RSP. And I try to put 
uh, interest bearing. Uh, for example, all my REITs, yep. uh, R-E-I-T-S, mm -hmm. are in my RSP. And then I go and uh, invest in my non-registered after. And just to clarify for our listeners who may not know, the reason why Liquid has these different stocks in different accounts is because, for instance, U.S., dividend stocks, they are recognized, the U.S. recognizes the RSP as um, a retirement account. And so we have a tax treaty with them. And so uh, you save on taxes that way if you put your dividend, U.S. dividend stocks into your RSP, whereas Canadian dividend stocks, there is a favorable tax credit. So if you have them in your non-registered, sometimes if you're in, in the right tax bracket, you could even have negative um, tax rates. So there's some interesting tax optimizations to be had when you understand what goes in which account. When your portfolio is big enough. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. So the main reason I split it up those way, like Chrissy said, is because of the tax advantages. Another thing I think about is when I'm withdrawing my portfolio later on, how am I going to do that? So I don't want to put too much money into my RSP, for example. Uh, so I'm also making those considerations as well. I've got a quick question here. Just because you've got the portfolios here that I'm actually just looking at them. In your TFSA, I noticed that two of your holdings are, I haven't done the percentage here, but they're a large percentage of the overall portfolio of the TFSA. Do you <laughs> make individual adjustments? And I'm wondering because I've got a particular holding that is, is kind of like become above 15% of that, of that, just of that TFSA. Do you make adjustments within that? What, what do you think of that? Not really. I mean, I look at my portfolio like overall, maybe once a year, mm -hmm. but I don't really make adjustments unless I need to, and I usually don't need to. So the way I think about it is, yeah, I have a large holding of something, but that's just because most likely that investment has grown a lot and has an outsized performance compared to everything else. Yeah. So that's fine. And I, I have some stocks like that in other places as well. But I would just ask myself, has the initial reason for me buying this stock changed? And if the answer is no, I just keep, I just keep it. Yeah. You let, let it run. Let it run. Yeah, because I have heard just anecdotally more people regretting selling their stocks too early than hmm. people who didn't get into a stock. That, well. that's, that's me with my hand <laughs> raised. That's me over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting thing is research has found if you rebalance less often, you actually do better because you're letting your winners ride and um, it, you're, n you're not skimming off the top, right? So it, yeah, you have to find that balance, right? Where, where you're not letting your portfolio skew too far the, the, in a direction that you're not comfortable with and also letting the, the winners run. Yeah, you definitely have to keep an, keep an eye on the balance of everything, uh, of course. But yeah, I've seen a study where it was like a 50-year or something, like a very long time study where they uh, surveyed different people. And the end result was there was a group of people who outperformed everybody else. And they were the people who like kind of died earlier. <laughs> yes. So they didn't touch their portfolio. And that's why it grew so much. Yeah. <laughs> now, let's just pivot a little bit here away because we can get uh, lost in the rabbit hole of all the holdings you have in your portfolio and, and anybody that's interested should go check it out and I'm sure they can uh, reach out to you on your blog and ask you questions but there is a long list of interesting investments that we should 
just briefly sort of touch on before we get to the end of the show, because we said we would, and I'm interested yeah. in it too. Chrissy, <laughs> I'm going to read the list and then we'll pick a couple just to, uh, to have a little discussion about, because it's pretty cool. It's, uh, we'll start with things that you once had, but you no longer have, <laughs> which was Twinkies, as we, uh, as we mentioned earlier. You've also mentioned farmland in the show, which is interesting. You've tried investing in Pokemon cards. You've done a little venture capital. You've done uh, some European investment fund. That sounds interesting. And you've also played around with a, a little bit of the meme stocks with Game <laughs> GameStop. So those you don't have anymore, but what you still have, which is an awesome long list as well. And I'll run 21. through these, 21. 21. I'll run through fairly quickly <laughs> for everybody. Okay, stocks we've talked about, corporate bonds, peer-to-peer -peer loans, mortgage investment corporations, mix, uh, precious metals, rental properties, cryptocurrencies, wine, stamps, foreign currencies, historical coins, vintage Canadian banknotes, who knew? Uh, Zimbabwe banknotes. I hope you've got like a 10 billion <laughs> note know. or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, video games and consoles, real estate crowdfunding, magazines, plastic figurines. Uh, is that Star Wars? G.I. Joe? I'm not sure. Uh, REITs, options, contracts, designer handbags, and... Green energy bonds. Quite the list. You're a man after my own heart. I'm going to have to drop my list. I don't think I have that many yet, but I'm, I'm getting close. I want to ask uh, about a couple because I am in them. You've got peer-to-peer -peer loans and real estate crowdfunding. So just quickly, what's the peer-to-peer -peer loan that you're using? Uh, uh, what's that about? Right. So the peer-to-peer -peer loan platform that uh, I'm currently investing in is uh, Lending Loop, and they are a Canadian company. I started in 2017. So it's been a few years. And yeah, it's basically loaning small amounts of money to uh, small businesses, usually, who then use that money to hire people or buy supplies. And the loans are typically one year to three years. Some can get a little bit longer. And you have varying interest rates from 8% to like 15% or higher. So I've been yeah doing that for a while. And uh, with the real estate crowdfunding, was yep. it that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. With the real estate crowdfunding, that is... Are you with Addy? I am with Addy, yeah. Addy. I think we're yeah, both okay. invested we're, in it. We're both invested in that, yeah. Right. So that is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's investing in real estate in Canada, where you pool a bunch of money together with other retail investors, and you can go buy a property. Yep. It's a good way to put some money into real estate if you can't afford to... Now, I don't want to get too deep into that because we can say, wait, why not just go into a REIT and all the rest of it? That's a, a topic for another show, but a couple of interesting ones. I'm also in those ones as well. Chrissy, do you have one you want to pick off there? Well, I I wanted you to list your video games and consoles because you wrote about that, <laughs> but I thought that was so fun. And something my kids would be interested in is the plastic figurines. I don't know what kind you're talking about, but my kids love Transformers. Like they, oh, my, yeah. my, my husband was into Transformers as a kid, and now he loves that his two boys are into them too. And I'm just wondering, what do you invest in plastic figurines-wise? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's mainly those one seventh scale uh, PVC figurines from different uh, video games and animes. So I have some ones from Guilty Gear, which, which is a fighting game. And then for video games and consoles, I, I started that when I was a teenager. So just buying games. And sometimes I would buy two copies of a game and I would keep one sealed and I would play the other one. And you never know with these things. So the, the top gainer I have is uh, a, a game 
set that I bought together. And there was like a few games in there for $80. And that was、uh, maybe like 10 years ago or something. And then that turned out to be one of the rarest games because there was quite a lot、huh. of controversy around there.、Um, the game is called、uh, Rule of Rose. And you can't buy it now for under $1,000. Wow. I've never heard of that, that, that a video game could be worth so much because you think they're old tech and you need an old console to play them and they, they get more and more scarce as time goes on. So it's interesting that they actually not only hold their value, but they go up in value. Yeah, but it's very difficult to know beforehand which ones do go up in value、mm-hmm. because most games lose their value over time when you、mm-hmm. count in inflation. But there's a whole market around. Video games and collectibles and antiques. And it's just, it's, it's a really deep topic that I'm certainly not an expert in, but there are people who just spend all day like looking at this stuff and they, they know exactly when a game comes out, like which ones to buy, which ones to hold,、yeah. uh, which ones are going to be worth a lot in the future. Yeah, I find it interesting even when we go to Toys R Us with my kids to look at the new Transformers, there will be adults there who are looking through every single package on the rack、mm-hmm. and finding specific ones. And it's unfortunate because my kids just want to play with them. And then these adults are taking them to <laughs> sell. And so they can't find the ones that they want. And yeah, it, it, it's kind of disappointing when that happens, but it's part of it. It's because those adults probably grew up with Transformers. So they have that nostalgia. It's the、uh-huh. same with like anything Pokemon related. The people who grew up with that kind of stuff, like myself, now have the disposable income to go <laughs>、yes. out and buy those. So, yeah, it's unfortunate for the younger generation these days who just want to like, play with them and、mm-hmm. use them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was awesome that you put together that list for us. I thought it was very entertaining. <laughs> I, I will throw it in the, in the show notes just so people can see it. Watches. You don't have watches on there. I heard there's good investment in watches. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that too. I just haven't gotten into it yet. I just, yeah, I, I don't know enough about it, but maybe someday I'll, I'll want to learn more about it. Yeah, that'll be our next、uh, tweet session after we figured out options trading. You and I kind of started doing options about the same time. Should we、uh, just wrap up this episode with a little banter about that? Sure. So I think our strategy is fairly similar. I'm basically selling cash secured puts to generate some. Monthly cash flow, or if we get assigned, then it's、uh, an adjusted cost base maneuver as a capital gain. Is, do you have anything you want to sort of point out、uh, of why you got into doing it? Your, your FI,、uh, why are you now trading options?、Uh, well, I think options are a good way to just make some supplementary income on the side if you have a sizable portfolio to handle that. Without getting yourself into、uh, you know, too much trouble and taking on too much risk,、uh, I figured it's reasonable to make like 3% or 4% annually on your portfolio with option premiums. So I'm sort of doing the same thing, selling put options, but I'm selling naked puts. So most of the time, options will expire worthless. So I don't have to put up anything. But then if it does get assigned or I can even roll it, then there are different ways to deal with that. But yeah, it's the amount of money that you can generate from a portfolio using options compared to the time that you put in, especially if you are on a roll and you have 
previous experience with certain stocks and you always go back to those same stocks because then you don't have to do the fundamental analysis of the companies again. You just go, oh yeah, I did that option you know, a couple months ago. It expired worthless. I'm going to do that again. And it's just really quick to put on those trades. And uh, yeah, the, the, the bang for the buck is just really good. Okay, I've got a super advanced question just for uh, all the real nerds out there that are into this stuff. I noticed that you sold some puts on VIEs, which are variable interest entities, such as JD.com, Alibaba, etc. These are corporations from Asia that are registered in offshore accounts like the Caymans so that your stock holdings actually are not worth anything except the contractual obligation. And uh, yeah, you sold some some puts against those, so you're comfortable with the basically the underlying structure of those companies? Yeah, uh, I think those are definitely here to stay. Now, it is very risky because they could go to zero, depending on regulatory frameworks, and there's lots of different geopolitical risk with that. But at the same time, those companies, those VIEs, are undervalued relative to North American stocks. So there is a balance there. And I would definitely put those companies in the category of speculation. So that's a very small portion of my portfolio. Yeah, totally agree. Thanks for that. I'm sure you'll, uh, we'll get a YouTube video off, off that uh, from you eventually. You've got a whole bunch of great YouTubes. So since we're wrapping up here, Chrissy, do you want to dive in with anything else before we let Liquid give his uh, little pitch? No, I I just want to say I really appreciated your blog. I was sort of a casual reader for a few years. And then I think maybe last year, I finally became a subscriber. And I have enjoyed every single one of your posts. Like you just put a spin on things that no one else does. It, it's just very unique the way you look at things. It's very sensible, very rational, but but different. And I really like that. I appreciate the uniqueness of, of what you write about. So if anyone hasn't discovered Liquid uh, Independence, your your blog, um, sorry, it's Freedom 35 blog. <laughs> uh, if anyone hasn't discovered it yet, I highly suggest that you go take a peek. It's uh, a lot of great content there. And you have, what, 800 something posts or more than that now? Yeah, about 800 posts. I can't. And and Chrissy, don't forget, there's always like the random useless fact that he posts at the end of each blog. So if you learn nothing, if you learn nothing else, you had a laugh, which is good. Yeah, Liquid's really good with his memes. (laughs) They're hilarious. So we pretty much covered it, but Liquid, tell us where everyone can find you. I've had people tell me they read my blog specifically for those random useless facts. (laughs) Perfect. Oh, you know, another thing I love about your blog is when you post the negative comments that you get. I just think (laughs) it's so funny that you do that because these trolls are just so mean to you and you just make it hilarious. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You got to find humor in everything. (laughs) Otherwise, life is no fun. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. So if we covered where everybody can find you, go ahead. So people can find me. uh, The easiest way is to Google Freedom 35 blog. Uh, That's uh, my site where I post everything on there. But sometimes I find it's easier to learn the financial concepts with audio and visual guides. So I have a YouTube channel called Freedom 35 Blog, and you can find me on YouTube there. And I do appreciate the little stick men in your videos because they, <laughs> they are really good to watch. I mean, the information is important too, but oh, yes. they're, they're entertaining. So Yeah, that, your videos are very well done. Just like everything else, your videos are excellent. So oh, I you. highly recommend you watch those too. Yeah, you, you must put a ton of time into it. <laughs> they're very well done. 
Yeah, I try to, you know, give value to my readers and watchers. So since I'm financially independent now, I, I have more time. So I'm trying to put that to good use. You know, ultimately, FI to me is not so much about the money, but it's about the time and freedom that I can enjoy because I no longer have to worry about money. Well said. Well, thank you very much, Liquid. We're glad you could come on and talk to us. Thanks for having me. Talk soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. If you've been getting value from our content, please support us in the following ways. Leave us a review and subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Tell your friends and family about us or use our referral links at explorifycanada.ca forward slash recommendations. All of our show notes can be found at explorifycanada.ca. You can also find us on our other websites, figarage.ca or eatsleepbreathefy.com. Our show is edited and mixed by Max Desmarais at Fix Audio. That's F-I-X-A-U-D dot I-O. Episode transcripts were created in otter.ai.